I think we have seat rearrangements. Welcome to Pedi Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. January 30th it is, uh, 2019. The last week in January already. Thank you for making it in safely. Hopefully you made it in safely in the snow. Uh, and maybe some others will continue to um, trickle in. Some of you may have seen Odd McClure out front. As Kathy mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're going to be piloting or instituting the uh, DH Culinary Medicine Program, uh, which is uh, titled Cook, Eat, Sprout. The first session with a healthy breakfast will be the 27th of February, the last Wednesday in the month, where you will be fed well but also taught how to prepare healthy meals for you and your family. So uh, there's a pre-questionnaire that Auden is needing us to fill out in advance to show the impact of the program. And so if you haven't on the way in, hopefully you can grab one on the way out. Um, as far as sort of local uh, up to some good, um, over this past weekend, um, our colleagues in Manchester who run a weekend clinic as we do in the general pediatrics had a had a five-year-old, five-day-old with negative prenatal screens and a normal uh, congenital uh, heart disease screening with ultrasound. Uh, unfortunately, came to the clinic with uh, irregular breathing and a pulse ox of 79, irritable, perioral, and acrocyanosis. Uh, they quickly uh, determined uh, that she had some uh, findings consistent with congestive heart failure and quickly were able to get her to the ambulance in no more than 20 minutes to, over to the hospital uh, in Manchester, the Elliott, and definitive treatment was initiated. So uh, our friends across the system are doing good work, and uh, we'll uh, thank them and remind them, and we'll get you updates as we hear how the baby did. Maybe in a future M&M. So that's emergency care, and, and today's speaker, Dr. Erica Constantine, is, is welcome to us, uh, brought to us uh, courtesy of Dr. Maya Ruttman, who is a fellowship uh, colleague of Dr. Constantine's. I think Maya might be in the, uh, in the ED today, or busy otherwise, or otherwise we'd be having the opportunity to introduce Dr. Constantine. But I, I, have, I have that pleasure, and I've discovered that uh, we share a background as graduates of the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University. Uh, Dr. Constantine is a native of uh, Montreal and uh, completed her residency in pediatrics after her medical degree, her MDCM degree at McGill, which I share in um, at University of British Columbia and British Columbia BC Children's Hospital. Subsequently met Maya in fellowship at uh, Brown University and Medical Schools, Rhode Island Hospital, Hasbro Children's Hospital, where she has stayed since, working her way up the ranks to Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine with a particular uh, important leadership role in directing their ultrasound training. And we're going to have an update today on point-of-care ultrasound in the 21st century. Um, welcome, Dr. Constantine. So thank you for all being here and for braving the snow. Um, it's really great to be here, and thank you to, uh, for you to invite me. I don't have any particular disclosures. So it's December 23rd, and um, I'm working in the ED. And the ED is in its usual sort of busy state. Um, we're seeing lots of bronchiolitis, lots of fever, lots of URI symptoms. And I thought it was going around at a pretty good clip. I was seeing patients efficiently, turning them over quickly. Um, and then I hear those famous words in our emergency department, which is doctor and nurse to the trauma room. 
And when we hear these words in our ED, you really never know. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And in this particular case, I really had no idea what was waiting for me. We had um, a 16-year-old girl who was brought in by car by her dad with severe progressive shortness of breath. She had been diagnosed with asthma by her pediatrician several years earlier. And um, according to her dad, her asthma was poorly controlled despite the medications that the pediatrician had prescribed. So according to her dad, um, she still had difficulty in gym class. She had difficulty with climbing stairs. And um, the, her visit was the result of you know, several days of increasing shortness of breath. So I walk into the trauma room, and the nurses had already started an IV. They gave her her first dose of steroids. They were starting her first Duoneb. And I come into the trauma room, and I ask her her name. And to my surprise, she was actually answering me in like pretty decent full sentences without much difficulty. So she told me her name. And at that point, when she answered me that easily, I was thinking, like, there's something that doesn't fit with asthma here. It's, it doesn't make sense. So I listened to her chest. And um, I didn't hear much wheeze, and I heard pretty good air entry bilaterally. But I've been fooled before in the trauma room because the trauma room is a noisy place. There's a lot of people. It's, there's a lot of hustle and bustle, lots of beeping. So I thought, well, maybe I'm just not hearing things right. So I think about my other differential. Given that I didn't hear much wheeze, I was thinking, well, maybe she has a pneumothorax. So I pull out my ultrasound. And uh, oh, I should tell you, her vital signs um, these were her vitals. She had a heart rate of 125, so um, tachycardic and tachypnic, and her um, oxygen saturation was an abysmal 86%. This child looked gray. So despite being able to speak in full sentences, this, these numbers did not fit with her clinical picture. So I pull out my ultrasound machine, and I take a look at, um, at her lungs. Now, for those of you that are not that familiar with um, the use of ultrasound for detecting pneumothorax. Ultrasound is much more sensitive for detecting pneumothorax than a, than a plain film, than a chest x-ray. And um, if you look at the image on the right, what we're looking at is um, this is the chest, um, the chest musculoskeletal, sort of the chest wall. And here you see the pleural line. And below that, this is all lung. And what you're looking for in pneumothorax is these comet tail artifacts. It looks like ants marching on a log, and it goes back and forth. Um, and this is normal lung. And on the right, this is what pneumothorax looks like. So you see a rib shadow here, you see a pleural line, but there's no lung sliding. You don't see any of those ants on the log. And the ants on the log that we talk about are, are the result of the opposition of the pleural and parietal pleura, uh, the visceral and parietal pleura. And if you have a pneumothorax, you don't get that artifact. So that's what you're looking for in pneumothorax. So I was thinking, you know, we can rule this out really quickly. And in our patient, she had great lung sliding on both sides. So you can see really good lung sliding here. This is her left lung, and this is her right lung. Really good lung sliding on both sides. So ruled out pneumothorax. So given that she still looked gray, her stats were still terrible, I went to the next thing that this could possibly be, and we started thinking, well, maybe this is a cardiac thing. And so we put the probe on her chest, and this is what we see. This is a parasternal long axis view of her heart. And what you can see here, this is the RV, the right ventricle here at the top of the screen, and here's the left ventricle. And what is most notable on this is that her RV is really big, and her LV is basically squashed. Now, when you look at it in the short axis view, 
Again, really big RV. And this is her LV. And what you see here is septal flattening of the, of the LV. And that happens when the RV pressures are so big that it actually squashes the left ventricle. And that's what we see in RV strain. So within five minutes of her being in our trauma room, we had narrowed down our differential, which initially we thought was asthma, down to pulmonary embolus or primary pulmonary hypertension. So all that was done before we even obtained the EKG. Now, I don't know about the rest of, rest of you, but I've seen RV strain on an EKG in a pediatric patient exactly once, and this is it. And so it's not very simple for me to diagnose RV strain on an EKG, um, but as I found out later after I had to look it up, um, it's flip T's in leads 2, 3, and AVF, and flip T's in v, leads V1 through V3. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, we sent her, sent her for a CT PE, and within... You know, within half an hour, we had our diagnosis. Her, she had no PE, and her diagnosis was primary pulmonary hypertension. No labs, no chest X-ray, um, no D-dimers. We had her diagnosis. Um, we went back to the to the family, and when we talked to them, it turns out her mom had died of primary pulmonary hypertension at the age of 30, and this child also had primary pulmonary hypertension that was misdiagnosed as asthma for all those years, so she had never been seen by cardiology. Um, and then she ended up getting transferred to a quaternary center where she ended up on ECMO and underwent double lung transplant. So I want to turn your attention to this man. And this man is John Forbes. And he was Queen Victoria's personal physician in the 1820s. And he was famous for saying the following. I had to write it down. That it will ever come into general use, notwithstanding its value, is extremely doubtful because its beneficial application requires much time and gives a good deal of trouble to both the patient and the practitioner. And what he was talking about is this medical innovation of the time. Does anybody know what this is? Right, it's a stethoscope, right? That's what he was talking about. And the stethoscope was invented in the 1820s by a Frenchman named René Lanec. And he wrote a textbook called De l'Auscultation Mediate. And John Forbes is the person who translated it into English, and that's what ultimately made him famous. And despite what John Forbes said, the stethoscope is something that I use every single day. It is most, it's my most, one of my most valuable tools, especially now it's bronchiolitis season, so I use it even more. And you can say the same thing of the ultrasound. Um, the ultrasound takes a great deal of effort for the learner especially, um, but it most certainly has uh, tremendous value, and it's absolutely here to stay. So you might hear about a few different terms for how we um, use ultrasound um, in, like, in the ED setting. Um, you can hear point-of-care ultrasound. You can hear bedside ultrasound. You might hear emergency ultrasound. Um, and I think that the term that I think is the most accurate really is point-of-care ultrasound. Um, and that's because it happens right at the point of care, meaning right now. And it doesn't always have to be an emergency. Um, you know, our colleagues have been bringing the ultrasound to the bedside for decades now. Um, and it doesn't always come without at least some delay. And that, I think, is what makes a distinction between what we call bedside ultrasound and point-of-care ultrasound, which is what we, um, what we do. So quick show of hands. Um, 
How many people here are hospitalists? One hospitalist. General pediatricians? Pediatric residents? Uh, anybody from radiology? Cardiology? Yay, cardiology. Um, anybody from anesthesia? And how many of you um, incorporate ultrasound routinely in your practice? You too. Critical care, critical care. Um, and how many people have never used ultrasound? Okay. Um, so regardless of what your background is, regardless of how often you've used it, um, I think it's really important to know that um, ultrasound is coming. It's here. And it, we're looking into how it can be incorporated into all levels of the medical system. So I think that regardless of how comfortable you are with it, I think it's really important to start now trying to learn this technology because the learning process takes a really long time. And uh, before you know it, it's going to be firmly established in all layers of the healthcare field. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So there's two things I want to talk about in my talk today. Number one, I'm going to talk about what, where we are with ultrasound. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about where we're going. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have a little bit of time for discussion for questions and comments. So right now, as we speak, there's literature um, looking into the use of point-of-care ultrasound specifically in all of these specialties. And I bet you there are some that I have missed. So even though you know emergency medicine has really, it's really ingrained into the practice in emergency medicine, not even in pediatric practice yet, in the adult um, or the general EM world, they use ultrasound, you know, pretty thoroughly. Um, and then pediatrics is probably about 20 years behind the emergency medicine, the, the general EM people. Um, and so it's up and coming for us, and it has been for the last five to seven years, I would say. But all these other specialties are um, incorporating it fairly regular, or at least looking into how to incorporate it into their practice. There's ultrasound uses for almost everything that you could possibly imagine. Um, and we're still in the process of figuring out how to best incorporate this into our practice and what will actually really impact patient care. And in my particular practice, I use ultrasound for all of these things in my, my particular practice. Um, and the reason that I use those, um, use it for these things, falls into one or a combination of, the, of three things. Number one, it helps me with diagnostic accuracy. Number two, it most definitely saves me time. And number three, it helps with procedural guidance and, um, and improves patient safety. So we're going to talk about those three things, and I'm going to give you examples of each of them. So <clears throat> um, we talked about the diagnostic accuracy. We're going to talk about all those things. So let's start with the case. Um, a two-week-old was um, transferred into our emergency department um, after, um, by the pediatrician. This boy had been seen at his well child check. He was brought to the, to the uh, pediatrician for his well child check. And when they had seen him in the, um, in the office, they really didn't like the way he looked. His cap refill was three to four seconds. His um, initial attempt was 35-6. And um, they were really uncomfortable with the, the way he looked. As it turns out, he hadn't been feeding very well for the last couple of days. And so they said, you know what, I'm really worried that this patient is septic. Let's, um, let's transfer him to the children's hospital. So he gets transferred to RED. And um, when, when he gets here, 
Um, these are his vital signs. Most notable, he has a respiratory rate of 88. He's afebrile. Heart rate is 157. SATs look okay. So we do our full septic workup, um, and <clears throat> we did not do the LP because he looked too sick. He looked too sick to do the LP. We administered his antibiotics. Um, his glucose was fine. And, um, and then we gave him some fluid boluses to see, you know, maybe we could improve his circulation. Well, we gave him our two fluid boluses, and he was no better. And um, he still continued to look really miserable, and we knew that this was going to be an ICU player, um, but we um, didn't have a diagnosis. We didn't know, like, is there something that we're missing? Is this metabolic? So in our emergency department, I always advocate that if you have a child that's in shock, um, it's always a good idea to kind of take a look at the pump and the tank, um, look at, you know, what his IVC looks like, look what his heart looks like, and just figure out what's going on, see if you can figure it out. So we put the probe on this um, child's chest, and we got um, an ultrasound that sort of looks like this. Um, so you can see in this one, this heart is not con contracting very well. There's really not very good contractility. And... Um, you can see, again, on the same thing on the apical four-chamber, this mitral valve here is really not opening and closing very well. So we still didn't know what it was, because I'm not trained to diagnose congenital heart disease. Um, but this heart, I could, I could tell, was not normal. And so we go back and we say, what was that blood pressure again? And this, these were the blood pressures. And so you could see a big difference between the right arm and left arm, and suddenly... Our differential, which had included sepsis, is now congenital heart disease, probably critical coact. And this child did not need antibiotics. They actually needed prostaglandins. So if you Google rush exam ultrasound shock, you're going to get this image. And basically what it is is an ultrasound protocol to look at um, various parts on a, on a patient to figure out where their, where their shock is coming from. And in the adult world, they talk about looking at the, the pump, which is the heart, the tank, the IVC, um, and then peritoneal cavity, aorta, and lungs as all for sources of um, where this shock might be coming from. And in children, it's the same thing, except that we don't care quite as much about the aorta, so rupture AAA is really not a thing in pediatrics. Um, but it's very similar. So depending on kind of what the presenting complaint is, We'll, have, we'll adjust our algorithm to look at the heart, the lungs, the peritoneal cavity, just to see where, where the source of shock might be coming from. And this is how we like to incorporate um, ultrasound into our everyday practice for diagnostic accuracy. I think we've been all on the receiving end of this type of chest x-ray, especially in bronchiolitis season. Um, and this particular chest x-ray, we got the following read. It said... Findings consistent with bronchiolitis versus reactive airways disease. In the right middle lobe, there is a streaky opacity, which might be atelectasis or might be pneumonia. <laughs> Clinical correlation is required. <laughs> and, and, you know, we get this so often. We don't do x-rays that often in bronchiolitis to begin with. But when we, when we do them, it's because we want to know, is there a pneumonia or isn't there? And then we get this sort of read, and basically what it means is... You know what? I don't know. And I can't fault any radiologist for that kind of read. It is the limitation of the chest X-ray. The chest X-ray just can't make those distinctions. Um, ultrasound is the new up-and-coming thing for, um, for diagnosing pneumonias. 
um, and um, we're using it quite a bit. In fact, I use it so much in my practice now that I rarely get a chest X-ray unless the kid is too wiggly for the ultrasound or I'm looking for something other than pneumonia or pleural effusion. Um, and so we talked a little bit about normal lung. This is what normal lung looks like. And you see a rib shadow here, you see a rib shadow here. This is the pleural line. And again, like before, you see really nice lung sliding. And these are all artifacts that you're looking for. So when you're ultrasounding a lung, you're actually only ultrasounding air, which gives you artifact, which are these lines that come along. When you see pneumonia, we talk about hepatization of the lung. And when the lung starts to look like liver, that's consolidation. And in this case, you see the lung, uh, sorry, the rib space here, pleural line, um, and then you see diaphragm. And above the diaphragm, you see this big consolidated lung. And that's what, that's what pneumonia looks like. And these are what we call air bronchograms. And these are dynamic air bronchograms, which are pathognomonic for pneumonia. And when you see this moving up and down um, within, the, within the bronchograms, that's pneumonia until proven otherwise. In bronchiolitis, this is what it looks like. And you see pleural line again. You see this really fuzzy margin. And then you see these B lines. These are called B lines um, that come along. And this is related to kind of inter interstitial inflammation. And then you'll also get these like little subpleural lesions that you can see, this little hypochoic circular thing. And you'll see that. These, you can't see those on x-ray. When you ultrasound a kid with bronchiolitis and you get this, you don't need a chest x-ray because you have a pretty good idea. There's no consolidation there. These are findings consistent with bronchiolitis. So that's how we're using ultrasound now to, um, to make those distinctions. Now, I'll be really clear. Ultrasound does not distinguish very well between pneumonia and atelectasis. Um, and so, so they, unless you see those dynamic air bronchograms that we talked about, it's actually really difficult to make the distinction. So there still is some clinical correlation that you need. But it certainly is, um, gives you a lot. When, when I see reads that say, you know, there's a streaky opacity in the right upper lobe may represent pneumonia, and I go ultrasounded and I see nothing, or I see the occasional beeline, then I don't put those kids on antibiotics. So um, diagnostic accuracy, right? Um, it's in cases like this one, we, you want to make the right diagnosis at the right time. You avoid, you know, extra antibiotics if you don't need it. Um, you give prostaglandins instead of antibiotics. Um, it, it makes a huge difference to at least the armamentarium of tools that you have to make those diagnoses. Um, and that's why I love point of care ultrasound so much. So we talked about diagnostic um, accuracy. Um, what about time, ability to save time? So here's another case. Um, we had a um, kid that was, was, I was working in overnight. Um, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And we had a, a, I got a call from an outside hospital um, looking to transfer this 17-year-old girl that came in with belly pain. And um, he said, we got a CT. She was diagnosed with a ruptured ovarian cyst. I'd like to transfer her to your facility. Now, we're the receiving center for all the pediatric patients. A lot of these outside facilities don't admit pediatric patients. So my threshold to accept these kids is very, very low. And I got on the phone with him because I didn't really understand. Like, we already had a diagnosis. Like, is she better? And he gets on the phone and he says, you know what, I just... Um, I wanted her to be transferred for pain control. Maybe pediatric surgery could see her. So I said, great, send her along. And it happened to be a pretty busy day and um, in the ED, even if it was 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. So she gets transferred to our ED. And um, by this time, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And these were her vitals, completely and totally normal. 
And so it took me a little while to get into the room because we were so backed up in the ED. So she waited actually in our ED for, for two hours before I could see her. And I'm an ultrasound educator, so anytime I hear that there might be some interesting finding on ultrasound, I just bring the ultrasound machine in and like get some images so that I can use it for teaching. So I go in with my wheel, my little ultrasound in, and um, I'm chatting with the patient. So how are you? How are you feeling? And um, you know, her vitals are still completely normal. Not no tachycardia. Blood pressure is normal. Um, she says, you know what? If I don't move, I feel okay. And I turn to mom, I say, like, what about her color? Is this normal color for her? Mom says, oh, well, she looks a little pale, but not really. Like, she's a pale kid, so I think her color is about the same. So we look in her belly, and so this is a uh, longitudinal view of her pelvis. And you can see, um, here's her bladder, and you can see the uterus coming up and around. And all this is clotted blood. So she has free fluid in her belly and then a whole bunch of clotted blood. And my first thing is, please tell me they did a pregnancy test. <laughs> so, because we wanted to make sure this was not a ruptured ectopic, it didn't absolutely look like this. And her pregnancy test times two was normal. And so suddenly, like, the, the alarm bells are going off. I'm trying to remain calm in front of the patient, like, you know, talking to her and saying, wow, there's a lot of blood in there. Um, and so, so I look at her vitals, still no tachycardia, nothing. And... Um, I call surgery and I say, you need to come down. Like this patient has like a whole lot of blood in her belly and supposedly she was diagnosed with this ruptured ovarian cyst and um, you need to come down quickly and you need to like do it fast. <laughs> so in the meantime, I'm thinking, where is this CT scan? I don't know where the CT scan is. And it got lost in the, in the whole transfer. Like it didn't make it with the patient. So we had no CT, but I knew that this patient had a ton of blood in her belly. So... They send down the pediatric surgery resident who happened to be an orthopedist intern who was rotating. And he saunters down and he says, I'll go see the patient. So he goes to see the patient, he comes out, and he's like, you know, those famous words, like, I'm going to go run it by my senior. <laughs> and the senior was stuck in the ICU with a dying patient. So the patient was dying near death. There's a lot of family emotions going on. Senior was stuck. And so I came out and I was like heightening the level of anxiety of all the nurses going like this patient should not be in that room. It was like the smallest room in the corner of the ED should not be in that room. Make sure she's on telemetry. Let's make sure her heart rate is fine. So her heart rate was fine. So I was like, we have probably a little time. And, um, and I was telling my resident about it. And the resident says, um, I said, you know, you should go scan this patient. It's like really great teaching. She's got a ton of blood in her belly. I showed him all my images, and um, so then he um, he goes in and scans her, and he um, says, "You know what? I think that her um, I think that she actually has more fluid than your initial scan." And this was um, a couple of hours later. So um, <coughs> this is a, the transverse view of the of the bladder. Um, so here's the bladder, and then there's what looks like a second bladder on top. That's all free fluid. And then you scan the right upper lobe. This is blood. All this is blood, and this is the inferior tip of her liver. And so this was the 4 o'clock um, scan. Um, and at 6 o'clock, when he goes into scanner, still completely normal vitals. 
And you can see even more blood, like even more blood in that right upper quadrant. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's bleeding out in my emergency department. Finally, we get the CT read from the outside hospital. And it was one of those um, places that actually outsources their reads to India overnight. And the read says, findings consistent with ruptured ovarian cyst with active blush, which he forgot to tell me about in the transfer. So, so the radiologist in India actually knew about this blush. I'm not sure that the transferring physician knew about the blush. But she comes in, sits in our ED for two hours before we even saw her, and she's actively bleeding. So when we saw that second scan, then, I, like, oh, then we had to call the attending and say, look, this kid is actively bleeding. You need to take her. And they um, took her to the OR, and they drained one and a half liters of blood from her belly. So we talk about the golden hour in emergency medicine quite a bit. Um, and in this case, it was definitely more than an hour. But it, you know, in, there are certain cases where time really, really matters, and making the right intervention at the right time really matters. Um, and this is one of those cases where if I didn't have my ultrasound findings to kind of push the consultants, I don't know how long we would have been waiting for surgery to come down to see this stable patient that had maybe a little pain you know, in the left lower quadrant. And meanwhile, her belly is full of blood, and she probably would have probably you know, tanked her blood pressure before we actually figured out what was going on. Um, so it's in these cases that time really matters. So we talked about diagnostic accuracy. We talked about saving time. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about patient safety and procedural guidance because um, I think um, this is one of the things where, um, especially when you're doing procedures, ultrasound is the window into the body. And, um, you know, we use it quite a bit now um, just for peripheral IV placement in kids with difficult sticks. So rather than, you know, going blind all the time, we can actually see where the line, where the vessels are and put the line in where we need to put them. Um, and all of us are very familiar with this image um, where, you know, you look at the anatomy of the neck and you see the internal jugular vein that is lateral to the carotid. And the way that I learned how to put it in a central line was you put your finger on the carotid, you feel the pulse, and then you go lateral to that. And so um, that's the typical learning. But what if this is your neck anatomy? So this is the carotid, and this is the IJ. Okay, so if you put your hand on the carotid and you're feeling the pulsations, you're going you're, you're gonna to do one of two things. You're going to either never hit the IJ, or you're going to puncture the carotid, um, trying to hit the IJ, because you don't realize that if you go a little bit too deep, you're going to go right through the IJ, right into the carotid. And in this case, we had ultrasound guidance, and even with ultrasound guidance, uh, one of our residents punctured the carotid. Um, and so there's a lot of learning to be had with when you're doing your procedures, you still you want to be able to see. Seeing is better than not seeing. But even when you do see, you can still run into um, what you can still run into complications. What you can do with ultrasound is maybe adjust the anatomy so that if you turn the head, you can adjust the um, the association of the uh, the carotid with the jugular. And so now when it's on top, if you turn the head, you can get them to be side to side before you put your line in. And that's super helpful for avoiding things like carotid puncture from the posterior wall of the IJ. What about percussion? How many people percussed regularly? Right? When I was a medical student, 
Um, there's some people still, like when, and sometimes it's helpful. When I was a medical student, I still remember we did bedside rounds on internal medicine. We had a, um, a very, what at the time seemed like a very old man who had <laughs> um, cirrhosis of the liver. And we, I remember learning everything about ascites and we did the shifting dullness thing. And we had to tap him. We did a paracentesis. We had to tap him and we could figure out like where exactly the fluid level was. And, um, and that's how we did it. We did, you know, we percussed. And um, we don't do this anymore because we have ultrasound. And you can see in this one that this is um, the liver. You can see the gallbladder here. And then there's fluid. Um, and then here's the catheter. You can actually see where the catheter is. You can actually put the needle in real time, make sure there's no bowel in the way, and then leave a catheter and just drain whatever you need and send it for whatever testing. Um, likewise, for thoracentesis, this is a kid that came in. He was actually really well um, until he developed pneumonia. And he came in really sick from his pneumonia and was actually on BiPAP. And we put the ultrasound probe on his chest. He had a huge pleural effusion. Um, and I could just show this to the pediatric surgeon who looked at it and put a pigtail in and drained him. And didn't, we didn't get a chest x-ray to confirm like where this was or a confirmatory ultrasound. Like She could just do it with our, with our bedside ultrasound. Um, so this is a really, really powerful tool. So, um, so we talked about diagnostic accuracy. We talked about saving time. Uh, we talked about um, procedural guidance. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about where POCUS is headed. Um, and we often look to our adult colleagues to figure out like, where we might be going. In the adult world, they're using transesophageal echo now at the bedside for um, patients that are coming in in cardiac arrest. And um, specifically, there's one thing that they like to use it for the most, and that's to look for um, quality of CPR. So this is a transthoracic echo of somebody performing CPR. And when you're doing transthoracic, obviously, there's a lot of motion artifact. And you can see here's the left ventricle down here. And you can see it's actually not being compressed at all by the chest compressions. Um, and this is the kind of information that's kind of useful to know when you're running a code. When you have transesophageal echo, um, you can see really good compression um, of the ventricles, and it's just a, a completely different modality. They put the transesophageal um, echo in, leave it there for the duration of the code, and then they have real-time, they put, put the machine there, they have real-time feedback on how their compressions are doing. Um, the other thing that they like to use it for is diagnosing why there was a cardiac arrest in the first place. And so for some people, they might like diagnose RV strain or they might diagnose, you know, in this case, there's really poor contractility. Um, and so they might diagnose, you know, post-MI resuscitation and things like that. Um, and so that's how they're using it in the adult world. Now in pediatrics, I don't know if this is actually ever going to come to fruition in pediatrics. The number one, we don't code patients all that often. Number two, most of the codes are respiratory. They're not primary cardiac unless they have an underlying cardiac um, disease. Um, and so I think it's, um, it's something that's out there that people are starting to talk about. I don't know if it's actually going to make it into the pediatric world. This is the most exciting thing that I think is coming down the pipeline um, for point-of-care ultrasound, and it's you know, new portable ultrasounds. Um, and these are ultrasound probes that literally hook up to your phone. And so people are using these um, either at the bedside in their own clinical practice. 
but it is also being used in the global health setting where um, you can actually take it to places where that are resource limited. Um, it's really portable. It's easy to, to like take to remote places without wheeling this huge machine. Um, and it's much easier to kind of do whatever you need to do. This probe, this is called the butterfly probe. And what is most exciting about this, it actually, most probes run on a crystal. They have like a piezoelectric crystal that has an energy fed into it. And then it vibrates at certain frequencies to give you your image. And this probe is new, brand new technology. It's, it's a microchip. And so that microchip can actually, they can adjust the frequency that it vibrates at. And this one probe can give you what would be the equivalent of a linear, a curvilinear, and a phased array probe all in one. Um, and it's um, super exciting for people because it's like one probe. They can take it to various places. Um, and they don't need to cart around all sorts of different probe types. Um, REACT is a telemedicine um, program, and it stands for um, Remote Education, Augmented Communication, um, Training, and Supervision. And now that we have these new portable ultrasounds, you can um, combine these with a tel telemedicine sort of platform. And in this case, you can see with this REACT program, this is the remote trainer so that they're off-site somewhere else in another country. Um, and then you've got the, um, the, the um, technician who is scanning. They get a picture of where the probe is, and they get a picture of the image. And you can actually um, guide people on how to do ultrasound now, um, to figure out exactly what you need to find out. So if you have questions and things like that, you can actually get real-time training using these new portable devices. Um, these devices are becoming much more intelligent as well. And um, this is a, a demonstration. I'm going to show you a demonstration of um, the butterfly probe that I mentioned earlier. And now it, it, has, it can calculate your um, ejection fraction for you. So this is a you know, live model at a, at a conference. This came off my Twitter feed, by the way. So he's putting this a parasitic long axis view. And he presses a button. And then the phone which is like his regular iPhone, will calculate the ejection fraction for you. There it is. That's his ejection fraction. So pretty cool stuff coming down the pipeline. I can't talk about point-of-care ultrasound without addressing the big elephant in the room, which is how do you train all these people on how to use point-of-care ultrasound and I have to say, because I'm a point-of-care ultrasound educator, this is the biggest hurdle ever in more widespread in implementation of point-of-care ultrasound because the amount of training you need to get good at it is phenomenal. It's actually quite big. And in general, in order to get really good at ultrasound, you need not only to be able to um, acquire the image, you need to interpret it applied in a clinical setting, and you need some sort of QA process whereby you, somebody looks at your images and you make sure that you make the right diagnosis. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of learning. It's not just like, you know, you put your stethoscope on the chest and you listen. It's like, how are you holding your hand? Where are you putting it? And how are you going to move it? How do you adjust the machine? There's a lot more um, finesse that you need to learn ultrasound. So um, in our institution, we do a lot of bedside teaching. Um, and it does require you to have an ultrasound expert in your department in order to do this bedside teaching. Um, 
And then we also run um, workshops. Now, a workshop is great because it gives you like the upfront, um, you know, the upfront, like these are all the things you need to know about ultrasound. But a lot of people, they come to a workshop and then they go home wherever they came from. They have a machine, but they have no person looking over their shoulder trying to show them how to use the, you know, use the machine. And then they stop using it and then they don't learn it. So it really takes a lot of hands-on and it takes a lot of motivation on the part of the learner in order to pick up this technology. Um, there's something called SonoSim, which I think you have here. Um, at least the EM residents are learning um, a little bit with SonoSim. And basically this is, um, like you can learn this in your, in your house, basically with a, like a handheld probe, which depending on how you move it, the computer senses how you're moving it. Um, and then it gives you like feedback on you know, this is what the ultrasound image would look like if you move the probe this way or that way or up or down. Um, and then they give you the corresponding CT image as well so that you get the 3D sort of picture of how to move the probe and where it's going to go. In terms of image interpretation, um, our department just got ImageSim for all of our attendings. And ImageSim is basically um, a computer platform online learning um, platform whereby they present you with a case and an image and then they ask you to interpret the image. And so depending on whether you're correct or not, then they give you a sensitivity and specificity of how well you're doing. So um, in this case, there's a nine-year-old boy who's presenting with shortness of breath. And um, so there's the image and then you can see the little pointer, you're, you're, they ask you to like make the diagnosis. Is this normal or is this abnormal? So this person says, definitely abnormal. This is where the abnormality is. And um, you submit it, and they say, yep, it's definitely ad, uh, abnormal. This is the abnormality. The goal of this is really, again, not to diagnose congenital heart disease or whatnot. It's not for, new, for like the nuances of echocardiography. It's really like, is this normal or not normal? And then you know which consultant to call kind of thing. So that's how they use it. Um, social media has a ton of ultrasound resources out there. And um, I mentioned my Twitter feed a little bit earlier. Um, I have a professional Twitter account that just follows medical education and ultrasound, and I get a ton of images that come through. And I, you know, just looking at images over and over again helps me um, learn new things all the time. And I can learn really just on Twitter, believe it or not. But there's also a ton of um, podcasts, blogs, websites, um, and there are a million out there. If you just go and Google it, you can find a ton. Some of my favorites, ultrasound of the week. Um, this one gives you a case. It gives you a bedside ultrasound. And then you can, um, you can you know, make the diagnosis based on, their, based on their findings. And they give you some teaching related to that. Um, and then there's a couple more um, five-minute Sono ultrasound podcast. Um, those are two podcasts which are great. Um, five, five minutes out of my, um, my ten things tell me that he talks really, really fast because it has to be done in five minutes, more or less. Um, but it gives you really the basics of how to use point-of-care ultrasound um, and how to perform different things, what the different views are. And then Ultrasound Podcast gives you not only the basics but up and coming. So they talk about transesophageal echo and all sorts of like really advanced stuff, but also very basic stuff as well. So two really great podcasts. And then as always, there's YouTube and DeMeo and um, SAEM, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, has the Academy of Emergency Ultrasound, and they put, in, they put up free videos 
that are tutorials on how to perform point-of-care ultrasound. So those are all available free online. So I can't talk about, um, um, when we talk about the, the quality improvement side, I need to talk to you a little bit about what the process is in our department for what we do with all these images. Because you, you want to be able to, if, if an image is going to be part of your medical decision making, technically it needs to be part of the me medical record. And it needs, you need to be able to like look at them and save them and be able to review them later. And so for us, we have a program, there's like um, commercial programs out there available for um, ultrasound image storage. And so all our images are stored in the cloud in our department. And I can access every single ultrasound image across four emergency departments through this, through this, um, through this website. And this is all like HIPAA compliant and all that. But um, every single exam type and who the operator is, who the attending is, um, how many scans, images, and clips, um, those all get uploaded into the cloud. And um, the person who is the operator is responsible for going in interpreting their image and putting in a read on their own images and then submitting it for QI. So um, my job as one of the ultrasound ed educators is to look at all these images and make sure that people are doing them correctly. Now in our pediatric department, I only do the pediatric side and I do most of the scans, my own scans, um, but we're still in the process of teaching everybody else how to, how to um, use the ultrasound, so they actually don't use it that often. So my job isn't that big, but there are some people, like we do somewhere between 25 and 40 scans at the bedside per day across all four EDs, and there's five of us. So the process of trying to look at all of these images is very, very difficult, and I'm not gonna lie and say, oh yeah, it's easy, because <laughs> it's not, it's really difficult. Um, and so the way it works is, so this is an appendicitis that I did at the bedside, and these are, I can access all my images. These are all the images of the, you know, whatever I clipped. And then I can go in and, you know, put in my exam information, like was it a clinical exam, um, where did I scan, what did I find, um, and then I put my interpretation, like um, is this appendicitis, is this not appendicitis, and then as the educator, I can go in and say, you know, give you a scale of one to five, like how good is this image and what could you have done better? And then I can email the operator and say, you know, this scan was great or you, you forgot to look at the inferior lobe of the liver or whatever, whatever it is. I can, and then they get an email back um, as to how, this, um, how they did. So why should point of care ultrasound matter to all of you? Um, you know, after all, like most of the most of the cases I presented were in the ED setting. You know, there's a lot of acuity and lots of procedures that happens down the ED. The fact is that um, you know the unstable patient, the diagnostic dilemma, the procedure, anything can happen at any level. It can happen on the ambulance, in the ED, in the critical care unit, on the floors, and sometimes even the outpatient setting. And that's why. They're investigating the use of point-of-care ultrasound in all of these settings. I know that in Rhode Island, they are implementing a point-of-care ultrasound program on, um, on the ambulances. And so it's coming. It's, it's going to be there. Um, and it's really important because of that that we, um, we all kind of learn this technology. In our department, we are putting ultrasound probes in the hands of first-year medical students as part of their anatomy learning and I'm telling you from having taught, I teach all levels. So I teach medical students, residents, fellows, attendings. When you put the probe in the hands of a medical student, it's like they've held the probe their entire lives. They, they just know the 3D orientation really well. 
Um, and you contrast that with somebody who's been in attending for 25 years, and it's very, very different. Like their, their agility with the probe is, is very different. Um, the medical student can maybe obtain the images, but they don't necessarily know what to do with the image or how to interpret it. And the attending will maybe not know how to you know, obtain the image that well, but they'll be really good at you know, clinical application and maybe looking at those images and interpreting them. So there's a whole gamut, and I think it's important that all of us sort of learn it because we're going to have to meet all these learners at different stages and sort of be able to, to talk about these images as well. It's important to learn point-of-care ultrasound as well because we all want to be able to speak a common language. Um, and, you know, if we are starting to diagnose pneumonia down in the emergency department um, by ultrasound, it's going to happen one day where the hospitalist is not going to ask for another a chest X-ray on top of that because they'll be able to look at the images themselves and say, oh, yeah, that's definitely a pneumonia. Send them up and we'll do whatever it needs to do and we'll follow to make sure they don't develop an effusion with our serial ultrasounds. I think that's where we're going to go, and it's important, if you, it's important to start learning it now so that you're not playing catch-up later when you know, all these young um, medical students and residents are starting to learn it and use it as part of their, as part of their practice. Um, there's a lot of places now already where all the point-of-care ultrasound images are being uploaded into PACS so that the whole medical team can see them. So it's becoming much more important to understand the, the language as well. So like many things in medicine, um, ultrasound is really, it's a tool, right? You can choose to use it, you can choose not to use it, but it's, it's actually a very powerful tool. Um, and if you use it to help with your diagnostic accuracy, to save time, to improve your patient's safety, um, you're going to do great by your patients and, um, and provide better, better patient care. Thank you. So what I'm hearing you say is I need to get my own personal medical student to do all of this. <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to say? I think it is not unheard of to, and, uh, and some people are looking at this for, should, should it be that attendings just can interpret and, and apply it clinically, and some, like, these people who are really agile, should they be obtaining the images? But, so sometimes I'm actually teaching my attendings you know, I, I tell them, like, you need to know what, what a good image is. So you need to know that for a good fast exam, you need to get all these components, and you need to know if the student got it or not and got all the components to be able to rule out free fluid in the belly, for example. So I don't think it's unreasonable, for, especially for late learners, right? Maybe as an old dog, this is a new trick that's it, it, it's very intimidating, but it's a pretty steep learning curve. Absolutely. I, I still really only feel comfortable with, like, line placement. Yep. I feel comfortable doing um, cardiac. I mean, I can do, oh, globally bad compression. Versus, right. But I don't have good windows. I'm wondering if there's, how do you feel about those courses that are out there? Because I feel like you need practice all the time, but it also seems to make sense to have a, a base to start with. Yeah. And then those um, online resources, are there any that are specifically pediatric? Um, so Image Sim is specifically pediatric. And it's geared, it's designed by um, the emergency medicine folks at SickKids. And so it's, um, the modalities you can learn for, uh, for ultrasound are heart, soft tissue, lung, and, um, and fast. So for those things, you, there's like 400 cases. And it's actually quite funny because we only implemented this in January in our department. And there were closet sono geeks in our 
um, in our group of attendings where they're like, yep, I did all 400 cases. I'm like, when did you have time to do that? These are all attendings, right? Um, and so for, for some people, the, the platform works really well for them. Um, to address the question of the courses, I think the courses are great for your, your basis. So if you have never taken a course before, I think it's great for you to go and do the course. The most important thing about those courses is that when you get back, you need to scan every time you're in the hospital because you're not going to get good at it if you just, you know, and part of the reason that I got so interested in Ulster in the first place is because I went to a course. And then I went home and I thought, great, I'll scan that because I know that I just learned this and then I had no idea what I was doing. And so it's really intimidating to, like, try to figure it out by yourself. You have to be a little bit humble. Like, and I had to be really humble when I was learning it because I would put the probe on the patient. I had no idea what I was looking at. And it just, it's like all pattern recognition. It's like when you look at an EKG and you finally recognize what SVT looks like, it's like second nature. And it's the same thing with ultrasound, right? You just have to look at tons and tons of images and you have to use the probe a lot. So attending a course is going to be a great starter, but it is by no means the be all and end all. Like you really need to do, you have to, if you have an ultrasound expert in your place, collaborate with them. If you don't, you have to be really, really motivated to like look at all your images, confirm them with any confirmatory studies that have been done um, and with clinical, like what the clinical course of the patient is. That's how I, you know, how I mostly learned. Yeah. That was a fantastic talk. Thank you very much. As a medical educator then, I'm hearing from Shalene and from you that there's a steep learning curve. It requires a lot of practice. Yeah. It sounds like to get to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 experiences mm -hmm. to become expert at it takes a lot. Where do you see this training happening and how then do you assess competence um, so that as a residency program director I can check off the box and oh yes, my resident or my fellow, is this going to be a residency thing? Is this going to be a fellowship thing? Is it going to be a specialized fellowship thing after your fellowship? So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the experience of what we're doing in um, emergency medicine and pediatrics right now. Our pediatrics residents, it's not part of the curriculum and part of that is because I am the only ultrasound expert in the entire children's hospital that will do point-of-care ultrasound. Um, and so it's just limited. Um, our PEM fellows um, rotate um, one month in their first year, one month in their second year, and then they have to do 300 scans over the course of three years. And they have to do a minimum of um, 25 for the major modalities, so for heart, lung, belly, um, they have to do a minimum of soft tissue. They have to do a minimum of 25 of each of those. And um, competence, is, it's a little bit of a hot topic now because when we talk about competency, there, you know, it used to be, ASEP used to do, like, these are the numbers you need to get. You need to do a minimum of 25 to 50. But kind of how I alluded to, if you put 25 scans in the hand of the medical student is different than 25 scans in the hands of a seasoned <laughs> attending. So there are some people that they'll do 50 and they're still not going to be competent. And there are some people that they just got it. They just, they just know it. And they'll do 10 and they'll be perfectly reasonable and know how to interpret it. It just depends on their own training background. Um, and so we're moving from like a numbers-based assessment to competency-based. And some places are doing like OSCE type. Like you need to have these numbers minimum. So we do a minimum 25, but also we need to like watch them do it to make sure that they know how to do it well. In terms of when we're implementing this, and I think this is what the scary thing is for attendings, is if we're putting it in the hands of medical students, all medical students are learning this technology. So 
a lot of the impetus for our, our attendings to learn is the fact that the fellows and attendings and medical students are asking them, hey, can you look at the scan? I did this scan. And then the attending is like, I have no idea what you're looking at, so don't even bother. And that kind of deflates all the medical students and the residents. They're like, well, why did I learn this and how are we going to move forward? And so we're, we're actually pushing really hard and putting a lot of effort into teaching our attendings because, um, because that's the experience. In emergency medicine, it's so ingrained in the culture now that you know, our EM residents are coming over the pediatric side. They see you know, a kid, MVC, they want to do a fast exam, but the attending doesn't know what they're looking at. Like, it's a big problem. So um, you know, the steep learning curve is definitely there. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, that was great. Thank you. I'm curious what the radiology department thought of this. I'm, I'm asking because I'm thinking back to the days when we first started doing point of care, blood gases and other mm -hmm. labs, and, and the laboratory people went berserk. Yeah. The professed problem was quality control mm -hmm. uh, and regulation. Uh, I think an underlying issue was the charges involved, uh, loss of income from that. Mm -hmm. uh, how did your radiology department? That's a hot topic. Um, <laughs> So, um, radiology was not happy at all that we were using this technology, and I had the benefit of being 20 years behind the emergency medicine people. So our emergency medicine, our general EM people, fought the fight for me. Um, and um, when I started, which was like five years ago, and it's still now, I don't discuss any of my ultrasound findings with radiology ever. So we use it... Um, sort of, it's only now that I'm kind of like, this kid has an interception on their bedside ultrasound. I need you to come um, from home to do the, you know, air enema reduction. And almost always still, they say, well, call me after the, you know, the comprehensive ultrasound has been done. So they're still, you know, they're still saying, they're still not really believing our technology yet, and they prefer to do it themselves, which is fine. I, that's fine. But eventually it's going to become so ingrained that, you know, our, if, if we can establish competency and, like, have really good documentation, it's going to be documented in the chart, and it's going to be part of the patient management. So if there's delays because the radiologist is still at home and or delays because, you know, they were waiting two hours, which has happened to me. I've diagnosed interception on a bedside ultrasound. We waited two hours for the comprehensive, and only after that did the radiologist decide to come in. It's going to become, like, it's probably not an, an issue now, but eventually it's going to become an issue. Um, and I, to the, like, I still don't, we kind of are left to do our own thing. Nobody's saying don't do it, um, which is great. There are some places where they really do say don't do it. You're not allowed. Kind of like how anesthesia um, oversees kind of what sedation medications we use. Radiology likes to oversee what point of care ultrasound we do. Um, so far, we're like left to do our own thing, and as long as we have good quality oversight. And, and the problem is, like, we're very, very careful as well. We are very careful not to overdiagnose, because if you overdiagnose things or you make mistakes and in, implicate a radiologist because you miscalled something, that's going to have huge setbacks for us. And so, we're really careful with how we involve radiology with our findings. So, um, 
There is, because some of you may have seen the survey here at Beverly Fishback. I went across with Carol this on survey going into the work group. We're going to dig into a lot of those issues of how we how we can utilize the technology. Of course, radiology is a major player at the table, but this is almost by definition uh, a disruptive technology. And, and if you think about the fact that computing used to happen in places where you brought your punch cards and someone owned a computer, now we all have computers on our, our, on our waists. And I would submit Kathy that this has to be core residency training because of that. But yeah. we are past nine, the residents have left, and anyone want to continue the conversation, thank you guys. Thank you. What's your Twitter handle? It's at E. Constantine MD. At E. Constantine MD. We can tweet that. Oh. <laughs>